You are listening to the API The Docs podcast. We are here to talk about API documentation upstream and downstream. We also specifically did user testing with our new hires because the first thing that a new engineering hire is supposed to do when they start here is to build a small app that uses our API. So we're like, ah, like these people are like our customers. They're using our API for the first time. We want to see how they experience the site. We had a feedback widget on the site and a lot of the feedback that we got was like, this piece of information that I really want is missing. Like, why doesn't this exist? Like, why don't you have information about this on the site? It's like, but we do have information about that on the site. Great developer documentation is great marketing because it's what tells the developers what your product does and how to use it in a way that's really clear and doesn't have any fluff or buzzwords or all of this marketing stuff that developers hate. Hello, welcome to the API The Docs podcast. My name is Laura Wasch. I'm hosting today's conversation as organizer of the API The Docs conferences. I am also co-founder of Pronovix. We are specialized on researching and building API developer portals. My guest for this episode is Alexandra Hofer. Alex is a DevRel engineer at Pled. Previously, she was engineering manager at Dropbox. Hi, Alex. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. This is great to be here. And I'm very excited. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. You told us that you're working on documentation and most interestingly for me, the overhaul of the dev docs. And before that, you worked at Dropbox and for six years at that, you were managing the QA team. That's a lot of people experience <laughs> that you got. Would you tell me, because you worked so long with QA, what are the problem spaces that you feel so confident in because of that experience with solving problems? Absolutely. It's a great question. And the roles of QA engineer and DevRel engineer have more in common than I thought they would originally when I made the switch. I think the thing that is the most similar between them is the real focus on customer experience and the people who are using your product, what's their experience like? Is it going to be good? Really putting yourself in their shoes and understanding what it's like to use the product from their perspective. So as a QA engineer, you're constantly doing testing. You're thinking about all the ways that somebody might use your product and how the developers of the product might not have thought of that. And they might have missed an edge case or missed a way that someone might interact with the product. And as a DevRel engineer, it's actually very similar. You're looking at the documentation and you're looking at the instructions for how to use this API. And you're like, does this make sense? Am I going to understand this? Uh, has the API been put together in a way that makes sense? Uh, sometimes you even find problems with the API and you say like, hey, we should change this. You're also talking to developers a lot and you're understanding how are they using the product? Uh, what would they like to see changed? Really. Uh, providing their perspective in, during the development process. In this particular project that I was working on with overhauling the docs, I was actually doing some very literal QA on this project in terms of using this new site that we had created to host our documentation and finding the bugs and, and doing extremely traditional QA. So it's been relevant in a number of ways. And I think that any kind of role 
where you are representing customers or working with mm -hmm. customers is great background for DevRel and great background for working on docs because of that empathy that you develop while working on it. Before we go further, what makes a DevRel engineer an engineer? What specifically is the engineer part there for? That's a great question because when I talk to DevRel engineers at other companies, not all of them are in the engineering department. I've talked to DevRel engineers who are in marketing. I've talked to DevRel engineers who are in product. I think there are valid reasons why you could organize things in other ways, but I do think of myself as an engineer because I am working with the engineering team to design APIs. Um, I'm also working on the documentation, which really does require someone to, in my opinion, especially given the lack of support that our documentation team has, it really does require, in some cases, you know, actually using the product and seeing whether what the team told you about the product was correct or finding out how the product works in certain edge cases because you know, nobody told you. So it really does require that engineering skill set, both to speak to engineers in a way that you know is going to be understood and to use the product and try it out. But I also do see the reasons why people might put DevRel in other departments. And I also do work very closely with our marketing department, partner with them a lot, and sort of provide the engineering translation or explanation for our product so that they then know how to position it to engineers. And I can explain to them why a developer would want to use this product, why it's so great, why it's different from our competition. Mm -hmm. To understand your work and your situation in the context of the company. So Pled is in the fintech industry. That's correct. And you're worldwide active or mostly in the U.S.? We are mostly in the U.S., although we do have a presence in Canada and in some countries in Europe. Uh, but I would say that the large majority of our customers are working with U.S. financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And the engineering team that you're a member of, how many people are you there and the entire company? How, how big is the company as per number of people in there? Yeah, so the the company is almost exactly 700 people. The engineering team is a little tough to tell. Often you can know by going into the office. I actually started at Plaid right after COVID hit. So I have never no, been into the, the office. office. <laughs> I've never seen the engineers and been able to count them. I would estimate that it's probably around between two and 300, but I don't actually know. Um, we have four engineering offices. So we have San Francisco, Salt Lake City, New York, and then we have a small office in Amsterdam. So I suppose that even if I were in the office, it would be a little tricky to count. So I'm going to estimate between two and 300, but I don't, I don't actually know the exact number. And the team where you do the most stand-ups with, let's say that, how is that team set up? Sure. I work very closely with our developer experience team. So they're the team that owns the developer dashboard. They own a number of API endpoints that are not product specific, but that are used by people regardless of which product they're using in our API. And that team probably has 
about seven engineers approximately. We have some openings and we have some people transferring in and we have some people transferring out and we work very closely with them. So the engineers who work on our team are sort of borrowed from that team. We, we share engineering resources. Uh, they also build the client libraries. So the DevRel team at Plaid does not own the client libraries, which I know is not the case with some other companies. Uh, however, I don't report into them. Uh, I have a different manager who manages me, and uh, I think that at some point soon, hopefully, um, I will have some people to manage myself, but it has <laughs> not happened yet. <laughs> That's a new tale. And where are you in touch with technical writers? As a lot of our listeners are technical writers or identify themselves with technical writing, how are they in touch? And do you do technical writing yourself? Yeah. I probably spend about half of my time on technical writing. We don't have technical writers outside of the DevRel team, so we're actually actively hiring one right now. We're not using the title technical writer. We are using the title DevRel engineer, and mm -hmm. we do expect that this person will do a combination of technical writing and DevRel work, uh, sort of like I do. But that is entirely within our team. I will say, however, that in practice, engineers write a lot of docs. So often what will happen is that uh, a team will write a piece of documentation and they'll give it to me and then I will edit it and put it into our docs. Uh, it depends on the external team. Some of them are more comfortable writing documentation. Some of them are less so. So their, their involvement can vary. But a lot of the docs are written by me. Pretty much all of the docs are edited by me. Some of the docs are written by engineers or PMs on other teams and then edited. Mm -hmm. And okay, let's go into a little bit murky waters here. Where do you touch point with the marketing team? So I have a regular meetup with our developer marketing person. And I work with her on figuring out one, like how to position any new products that are part of the organization is coming out with. Um, and two, just figuring out what our overall marketing strategy should be when it comes to developer marketing. So for example, right now, some of the questions that we're trying to figure out are, should we go to conferences? If so, which ones? If so, how do we tell whether it was worth going? We're thinking about how much to focus on social media. We do have a social media presence, but we're thinking, should it be bigger? Should we try to drive more traffic? Should we create a Discord? Should we create a Slack? Should we create a forum? You know, thinking about, should we be doing any advertising? Like, do developers even, like, look at advertising? And if they do, uh, you know, where should it be? And, and what would it say? So those are a lot of things that I'm working with the marketing team on. This is not really a hard line there. Yeah, it's okay. to work with them on um, communications and press releases. If we're doing any press events, we'll often work together to figure out if we think folks might respond and uh, how to engage with folks who do. So it's it, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. You wrote before that people who write the doc, they really need to think holistically about the APIs and uh, the developer experience about products, the documentation and the engineering collaborating on that DX. So also clearly, like you said, even though you can call one thing marketing and another thing DevRel, I don't think you can build a wall between the two. Actually, I'm not even sure you can draw the line in the sand. So does that also mean that you actively encourage movement between these teams? When we think about how we work with marketing, 
is that the docs themselves are marketing that uh, our CEO actually wrote a doc and he wrote, that was about how to market to developers. And one of the first things in it is that great developer documentation is great marketing because it's what tells the developers what your product does and how to use it in a way that's really clear and doesn't have any fluff or buzzwords or all of this marketing stuff that developers hate. So it is one of the purest expressions of developer marketing. And so I'm working with marketing on things that are marketing initiatives, but I also, in some sense, consider all of the dots to be a bit of a stealth marketing initiative, you could say. Yeah, and vice versa. Um, our marketing team tends to have more of a comms background, whereas DevRel tends to have more of an engineering background. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a little less movement between those. Also, these teams are all, also very small. So we're talking about like one to two person teams. So actually our first DevRel engineer who left the company a while back, but he actually came from the product organization. And then we've also been looking you know, at support. So a number of people in developer support have really been active with developer relations and I've been working with them quite closely. And I definitely think that, you know, movement between those orgs is something that would potentially make sense. So some of them have written content that I'm adapting to the site, you know, help center articles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I understood that when you started working in the illustrious month of March, 2020, the company was starting already in the middle of a docs revamp. So why did this come about? And where exactly into which wave did you did you get dropped into? And and let's talk deeper about that. Yeah. So the docs revamp, as you mentioned, did start before I joined. But my understanding is that if you look at our old docs, we're talking about API docs strictly, right? Yes. One, they were quite painful to maintain because they were literally just one HTML page. Uh, was our entire docs. I think we also had like an, uh, like an iOS guide and an Android guide were separate pages, but like 95% of our documentation was one page of HTML. It took about 25 seconds to load. So it wasn't adapted to our current product offering. Like you could tell that it was created back when we had like a quarter or a fifth of the number of API endpoints that we have right now. And then we kept mm -hmm. adding endpoints and the doc structure stayed sort of similar. So it wasn't a fit for the product offering that we had. So it was really time that we actually create, you know, an entire site with different areas for different types of content and search functionality and specialized API reference, which is powered by OpenAPI and all kinds of modern functionality that you might expect to see in a way that would allow us to scale the site and provide better user experience. So yeah, that was a really big, exciting project. And I'm very proud of what we ended up coming up with. It's uh, plaid.com slash docs, if the listeners want to check out for themselves, if they agree. But yeah, we really transformed it from something that was very functional, but whose design just really was not a good fit for the number of products that we were offering and for the progress that our company had made in the, let's say, four or five years since the original site was created. Was it only the documentation that was revamped or did the API change or was even the database redesigned? Mm. So we changed the appearance of the site totally, um, as well as all the information architecture and 
the design and the style visually, it's also, it's all very mm-hmm. different. Um, and then on the back end, it's still on the same code base. You know, it's still on our plaid.com, we call it. Uh, but we did redo the stack that it's based on. So in particular, previously it was HTML and now it is MDX, which is a language that allows you to combine Markdown and React. So Mm -hmm. we have a number of React components to uh, render various things on the site, like uh, callout boxes or API reference sections. Um, And then we can also just edit in Markdown, which is really nice and much better user experience than having to work with HTML. Uh, you're also working on search and navigation, right? Like that's a really big part of the upgrade. That was huge. And it was much more important than I think we realized going in. So when we went in, you know, like I said, our, our old doc site was just one big page. And what I think we hadn't necessarily appreciated is that in one, in, in some ways, having one big page is, is terrible. It's control F. It's very, very comfy if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, you can use control F and you can just find everything on that page. And you know that if the string that you're looking for is on the page, then control F will find it or command F, I suppose. I my, my Windows background is showing. But on the new site, command F is not going to work that way anymore. So it means that we really have to have a very solid search experience. And, you know, we did integrate search, but when we did the first version of the site, we didn't really optimize for the experience of using it we kind of, I guess, had in our heads that people would navigate through as, as their primary way of going through the site. And mm-hmm. I'm not really sure that that was true. Um, and so we had a feedback widget on the site and a lot of the feedback that we got was a lot of like, this piece of information that I really want is missing. Like, why doesn't this exist? Like, why don't you have information about this on the site? It's like, but we do have information about that on the site. This was like freestyle feedback or you actually did user testing? Ah, that's a great question. So we did both. We did a bunch of dog fooding internally. So we sent the site to people. We asked them to use it. And then we just gave them this uh, Google Sheets. um, And we asked them to fill it out with all the feedback that they had. So that was great. We also specifically did user testing with our new hires because the first thing that a new engineering hire is supposed to do when they start here is to build a small app that uses our API. So we're like, ah, like these people are like our customers. They're using our API for the first time. We want to see how they experience the site. And then we also sent it out to some customers who we identified as people who were particularly interested in giving us feedback. And we did get feedback from all of these groups and we incorporated that in the early stages. But at a certain point, people are just like, you know, I already saw the site. I don't have anything else to say. Like go through somebody else. So we created in-app feedback widgets on the site. And one thing in particular that we did that I think was extremely helpful was while we were in what we called beta, it was, you know, it was an open beta, we had several phases of releasing the site. So at first we had the old docs and then we had a button that says like, hey, check out our new docs, click here. And then once we had enough traffic from that and we were pretty sure that we had worked out most of the kinks in the site, we actually just directed people to the new docs by default. And then there was a button that was like, if you want to go to the old docs, you know, click here. Um, And so we had in-app feedback on every page on the site where it says, you know, was this helpful? Yes, no. And then you can enter some free text there. But we very specifically had 
if you clicked the button that said, I want to go back to the old site, please, we asked you for a reason and you had to enter a reason before we took you back to the old site. You know, you could just pass keyboard, but you had to say something. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we got a lot of useful feedback that way. That sounds a little scary, though, doing a beta for a fintech API and then suddenly, poof, (laughs) you're in a new version. Uh, Yeah, so... The API itself didn't change as we were doing this. So it was, well, we did put out a new API version, but it was it was purely a change to the docs. Yeah, and we we did keep the old docs up. The old docs are actually still up. Uh, we don't update them. We don't direct people to them, but they are still around. So we wanted to make sure that if, in case we had made anything about the user experience difficult or left out some piece of information that was critical, the people could always go back to the old documentation. Mm -hmm. And these widgets are still there? So you still collect uh, feedback on things? Yeah. How do you triage that then? What do you do about it? Because there is such a thing as way too much feedback. Yeah, there is. I would love to have that problem. We do not have that problem. I wish (laughs) people would submit more feedback. We get a lot of feedback. Uh, One thing that's actually a little unusual about Plaid is I actually think we get a lot of people visiting the developer site who are not developers. I'm sure this happens to every company to some extent, but I think it happens to Plaid a lot because unlike some APIs, we have a UI that faces end users that has mm-hmm. our name and logo on it um, mm-hmm. so that they know that they are connecting with Plaid and they know that they're sharing their information with Plaid. So some people see this name and logo and they want to learn more about the company or maybe they're having some kind of technical problem with the app and they want to tell us about it to get some help. We actually get quite a bit of feedback from those folks. We call them internally consumers, but I think end user is is probably a more understandable phrase. So we get a lot of feedback from them, which unfortunately just isn't actionable because they're like, I don't understand any of this. And it's like, yes, I know you don't understand any of it because it's written for a developer audience and you're not a developer. So we, we try to send those folks to our pages that are targeted at end users. Uh, in terms of developer feedback, I probably look at that several times a week, certainly. And most of it is pretty actionable and most of it I can just do. So they'll say like, this section doesn't make any sense. And I'll just look at that paragraph and be like, okay, I can rephrase this. Or they'll say like, hey, like you're missing a comma in this code sample. And I'm like, yes, you're right. I'm going to put that comma in. So almost all of that feedback we can act on pretty much immediately. The feedback that we have to prioritize is generally stuff that comes in internally where someone from say solutions engineering will say like, Hey, I had a customer who was confused about how to do this with the API. And it would be great if we could have an article on how to do this with an example. And I'm like, I agree. I will get to it eventually. Um, and so the way that we uh, prioritize feedback like that is one, if it's a quick fix, you know, just like fixing a mistake, improving something, wording to make it clearer. You know, we just, I, I just try to do that immediately. I try to go through at least once a week and, you know, hit all of the little nits that people have filed in our JIRA. And for things that are bigger, I really try to focus on things that are causing the most customer pain. So if we know, for example, that we introduced something new into the API um, and we're encouraging people to use it, but it's maybe something that's complicated or, or hard to use, I'll really focus on that. We also try to focus on things that are earlier in the funnel, you know, anything involving getting started, anything involving the quick start. That's always a top priority. I also try to focus on things that really affect our smaller customers the most uh, because large customers often have account managers 
And when they're confused, sometimes they look at the docs, but often they just, you know, shoot us an email or, or, or call us up. Whereas a small customer can't necessarily do that. So for them, it's really, really important that the docs be excellent. Mm -hmm. From the way you say, it sounds to me that you are the traffic hub for feedback, but two questions. One, do you have a tool that is traffic control for this and archiving and triaging? And is it support or DevRel? Like who reads this first and who says priority and tagging? Like who has to answer that? We talked to another company where they actually take turns, sort of like the on watch <laughs> support ER. And they, they were very happy with that. How, how do you solve this? Because you do have a team of DevRels. That's pretty cool. So it's, uh, it's just a DevRel right now who is triaging the feedback. So we use Jira. If the feedback comes in through the tool and it's just like super quick, like you made a typo, I'll just fix it. I won't bother putting it into Jira. But for anything that takes effort, and this is often stuff that doesn't even come in through the widget, often like we'll be in a meeting and someone will say like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And I'll just like put it, put a Jira task in to track it um, mm -hmm. so that we don't forget that idea. So it's all being managed by DevRel. The volume isn't enormous. I would say that in a typical week, we maybe get five tickets. And of those five, probably about three or four are just very quick fixes. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the big triage work is uh, longer, more media articles, and also supporting new products. Mm -hmm. So right now, it's, it's usually the new products that will win out over explaining an existing product better because, you know, you can't just release something and not have any documentation for it. That's a uh, not an experience that you can do. So that those take up a lot of our time. But that's part of the reason why we're hiring so that we can make more progress on the backlog. And for writing the new docs about the editorial and publishing tool chains, well, partially coming from our side, uh, because we work with CMSs, we know that there's often a tension between who is the gatekeeper and who writes, who edits, style guide, enforcing, all of that. Do you experience any of that? Um, and what role do you play there? Yeah, yeah, I do experience some of that. It's not something that I am happy with our solution for. So all of our documentation is in GitHub. We use GitHub reviewers and code ownership tools to enforce reviews. So right now, if someone makes an edit to the docs, uh, somebody on the documentation team needs to approve that. It doesn't work perfectly, um, in particularly because our code and our content are in the same repo. Uh, the same people uh, get pinged on both. And sometimes the engineers are like, why am I reviewing your documentation for this new feature that I don't know anything about? I'm just, just you, know, you can just approve it if you don't see anything wrong with it. Um, so it's not perfect. Um, and then the other thing that can be challenging is that folks in, say, sales for example, often have great feedback on the docs, but the salespeople don't have uh, GitHub accounts usually. Or, so if they want to make an edit, they have to file a ticket and it goes through me and I do it and it, it's a little inefficient. I hope that someday we will have a solution for that. Uh, I did write up instructions for folks who don't have accounts or who aren't familiar with GitHub on how to make these fixes, but it hasn't had as much uptake as I would have liked. So right now we are in a mode that is probably very heavy on the gatekeeping. The benefit of that is that it does help prevent stuff that is poorly written or inaccurate from getting into the docs. And I will say that almost every PR that someone submits to the docs, 
I have some edit to make, even if their PR is like one sentence. So I do find that it is helpful to have that gatekeeping and I wouldn't want to give that up. But what I do wish we had is that I wish it were easier for people who are not engineers to make that original edit. And then I can gatekeep it however I want and and do all Mm -hmm. the editing. But yeah, I wish it were a little bit easier for them to get in originally because I think the fact that it's in GitHub is a little is a little scary for some folks. And if you were to like a bit of a crystal balling experience. So if we forget about the technical limitations, like what tools exist now and how they are sewn up into chain. So let's put that aside. But seeing how coding knowledge and even familiarity with things like GitHub is changing. I do think it's changing, even if slowly. So like what we feel comfortable with is definitely changing. Where do you see this is going? And like, really, let's put aside what tools we have for this. But the distinction that we make now, oh, salespeople don't like touching GitHub. And maybe there's a reason for that. And it's good that they're cautious not breaking the site in one day, just like I don't think I would like my marketing brochures to be suddenly filled up with code. So that's, that's good reasons for this. But if we put all of that aside, what do you think? Well, I can tell you what I would love to have would be something like Something like a wiki that people could easily edit, but then with an approval process um, and a review process that is similar to GitHub. Well, but with a better UI. Uh, So one thing that we've even talked about when we think about uh, Hack Week projects is we were like, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could actually have developers submit suggestions? Like what if there were a UI where they could edit it like it's a wiki? and we could approve or reject their corrections. I think that would be amazing. I think that crowdsourcing information is so valuable. um, And there are so many examples right now of places where that's been really successful in, you know, obviously things like Wikipedia, in in open source projects. And Mm -hmm. it really helps you get the information from the experts, you know, the person who is the expert on a particular API endpoint is the person who built that API endpoint, not me. So the people who are working with the customers, the people who are actually building the product, tools that make it easy for them to contribute content, I think are amazing. But I also think that their review process and going through and looking at it from the perspective of, is this grammatically correct? Is this clear? Is this as concise as it could be? is also really important for having a professional feeling experience. And I would love a review flow that really allows us to incorporate both. I think that would be really amazing. Mm -hmm. What kind of skills are you learning now? Mm, That's a great question. I would say that I've definitely learned a lot about API design. So that's not something I've worked on at all before, but I'm now working on our internal API review council that looks at any changes that we wanna make to the API um, and gives feedback on them. And that's something where I've learned a tremendous amount and has been super fun. I've been learning about writing specs and feature proposals. Uh, So our, we call it the learning platform, our developer documentation site. 
And I've really been working lately on proposing some new functionality for that. For example, one thing that I would love for us to add is providing more contextual content. So if you're a developer and you're using our product, we know something about you. You know, we know things like what um, API endpoints you're using, which ones you're not. We might be able to tell what errors you've encountered. And I would love for us to be able to provide, for example, some contextual information based on what we know about you. So I've been working on a spec to uh, do that. In my role as a QA manager, I never got to do that because as a QA manager, you're, you know, as a QA engineer, you're really looking at the product after it's been built. Um, mm -hmm. And so looking at other phases of the cycle has been really interesting. And I've also been learning a little bit about marketing and social media, which is very cool. I actually, uh, it, it's a little silly, but um, I don't use Twitter in my personal life at all. But um, I am now one of the people who manages our Plaid developer Twitter account. So I've been having to learn that and uh, it makes me feel very old. But, uh, you know, it, it's also great. You know, I, I love the fact that it makes it so easy for developers to get in touch with us. I wish more developers would get in touch with us. Um, I really enjoy talking to them. So there's been a bunch of skills that I, I've learned a lot. Like I, I did have a bit of a background in writing and mm -hmm. in technical things going into this role, but the fact that it's so broad and it touches on so many things has really helped me to learn a lot. What kind of message would you like to leave the listeners with? Like what is very much on your mind now? Mm. <laughs> Let's see. So the message that I would like to leave listeners with, well, it really depends on what they want to know. But um, I would say I think this is a really exciting field. And I think it's an exciting field because you can have so much influence on the developer experience. And one of the things that I love about writing the docs is one, just being able to create like an excellent developer experience and one where they're going to have the easiest time. But I also really think that, you know, anyone who's in a role where they are customer facing or where they are building things that are directly customer facing really owes it to themselves and to customers to get out there, to get customer feedback, to put on their own customer facing hat and to give that feedback to engineering and see not just how can we document this product, but how can we actually make a better product? And I know from my time in QA that sometimes it can be scary to say that. Sometimes it can be scary to say like, hey, I think we should change this. Um, but it's often really well received and it's the thing that is important to do in order to make a better user experience. So as a writer, you're in charge of documenting things, absolutely, and you're in charge of making sure that people have, you know, understand how to use the product. But I also think that because you have so much empathy with how people are using it, that you really have almost a responsibility to make the product itself as good as possible um, in whatever way you can. Mm -hmm. Seeing things a bit more in, in motion. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and thinking about not, not just the docs, but the overall user experience and how can you make that better. Thank you, Alex. Well, thank you. Uh, this was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the API The Docs podcast. Thanks again to our guest, to Pronovix, for letting us work on this, and the entire API The Docs community for all of the mutual support and sharing of experiences that you give each other. Do you have a topic or guest you would like us to spotlight? Drop a note at podcast at pronovix.com. 
If you go to the website apidocs.org, you can find the recaps and recordings of past API The Docs conferences, as well as the upcoming program. Until next time, be well. <laughs>